Okay. Last last one till September. Uh, very good, very good idea. But uh, well, Pastor Brzezik both have uh, both him and I said this is a good idea, but we haven't actually talked to each other and said yes, this is the idea. But it is a um, conceivably, it is a, uh, a a book about a it's a conversion story from atheism to Christianity, a woman's story. Who uh, she was raised in a uh, staunch atheistic home. So, so uh, the title of it's something other than God. Pretty sure. It's a good question. I you know it's it's a it's kind of an unusual name. F U L W I E R. Fool fool wire fool Something like that. I'm pretty sure that's going to be it. I actually haven't read the book, though. That's that's. I mean, I've read all the reviews. I've read all the descriptions. I've seen interview or uh, read some uh, interviews with her, and everything points it. No. Although I think there is a YouTube series about her. Something like that. Okay, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of excited about it. It uh, sounds very interesting because, um, well, the title is kind of funny. Something other than God. You know, there, you know, this whole idea that you can try your best to run away, but God still keeps coming around. Okay, well, um, we're going to finish up... Uh, We're going to finish it up. And we're going to finish up uh, last week and then the Dreadful Idol. We're going to be a little bit, spending a little time about just kind of reflecting on the book as a whole. But um, a review. Worship idols uh, give exactly what you ask for. And, and that, that's the danger because God gives you what you need. And um, yeah, when you get your idol, you, it, it can end up in an undignified travesty as she recounted the story about these this family planning a funeral service. Now, um, then worshiping worship, how uh, you can even turn something good into a worship idol. And Scalia's example is the rosary, but we just briefly mentioned how like uh, confirmation and the age of communion are not actual Lutheran dogma. Like there's not Nowhere in Lutheranism says you have to do confirmation at this time. And uh, in the same with age of communion. But we kind of thought, hey, this is the way it has to be done. So um, confirmation is good, and obviously communion is good. But when we uh, say it has to be done this way, there is a very slippery slope turning that into an idol. Like that, that, that angry guy who's, you know... It's going to turn her into her bishop over uh, some rosary business. Now, then she went into the uh, nepotism, ministry nepotism, and the antidote to this is how we've always done things, and these are the people who have always done them. The antidote to that is simply be normal and listen. 
It, that seems too simplistic for a lot of people, but frankly, that's the truth because, as the quote from the Big Kahuna says, when you be normal and you listen, you actually treat them like human beings rather than uh, a client or some, some, someone you're trying to you know, sell towards. And uh, I think that quote does a good job of revealing that to us. Okay, all right, now, but we didn't really get too far, so this is where uh, we're going to move into, and last week I asked the simple question about, like, what, do, what is distinctively Lutheran, that Lutherans do, and we had a tough time kind of come up with things. We came up with a mighty fortress. Now we're going to ask, what are some of the things that Lutherans don't do? And last week, we, I think we had a few, so. Um, but before we get to that, uh, liturgy can only attract people when it looks, not at itself, but at God. When it allows him to enter and act, then something truly unique happens. Beyond competition, and people have a sense that more has taken place than a recreational activity. That's a quote by Joseph Ratzinger that was quoted in the book, but I, that, that's a pretty nice thing. Um, yeah, when we overstuff the liturgy with human trappings, we risk making our worship too much about ourselves and our ideas, and it becomes that much more difficult to lose ourselves to God. So, obviously, we all know a little bit about the Reformation, and Martin Luther saw the liturgical worship back then as having a lot of human trappings. And so he reformed the liturgy, the, the, the Deutsche Messe. And uh, so, you know, that's good. That's exactly right. But in, an, in a bit of irony, things have gone so far where the idea of not having things has become an idol itself. You don't have to have all that stuff. I've, I've heard that umpteen times from people. Usually it's, you're not saying you have to have that stuff, right? Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. Um, and it's partner, it is not, dot, 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 meaning. So, what are some Lutheran versions? What do, what do Lutherans not do? And again, I'm kind of speaking uh, colloquially. We don't have altar calls. There you go. That, that, would be a, that would be a good example. That's right. We don't have confessionals. There we go. Okay, good. That, that, uh, that, that's a good example of how people mistake, because so, Lutherans have, uh, it's in the small catechism, the, the, the sacrament of, of uh, absolution or confession absolution. And obviously during Lent, I mean, uh, during Holy Week, we have assigned uh, hours of confession, and then the rest of the time it's it's by appointment. So a confessional being a a box, no, I know, uh, being a box, where most most Lutherans would say that's that's anathema. Well, why don't we have them? Actually, I'm sorry, I should ask that first before I went in all that other nonsense. <laughs> We want to use the room for something else. That's right. That's one reason. So, so I've heard. Has Pastor Prusik ever told ever ever told you the story about the road to perdition? 
And the filming in, you know, it was filmed around Chicago. Okay. And there was a, um, a Lutheran church, mm-hmm. South Suburbs, mm-hmm. and the, the film needed a confessional. So they actually built solid wood confessionals in a Lutheran church just to film it. Cause they, I guess, you know, they wanted like, an, like that kind of period church building. Well, I mean, they, they were very nice, and, you know, rather than just keeping them, again, Lutherans have, it's in the small catechism, we have a thing about confession absolution, hearing confession from the pastor. Well, rather than just keeping them, guess what they did? They spent a bunch of money to rip them out. Because Lutherans don't have confessionals. Why not? Or I mean, is that actually is that is that actually true? Lutherans do Lutherans not have confessionals? That's right. So. Yeah, so our confession, well, so we do actually have a confessional at St. John. What is it? Yeah, it's the back chapel area. (laughs) And, uh, which complicates things, because if everyone's come to confession, and, uh, you know, whether it be, uh, boy, I forgot her name, Uh, the woman who who, uh, mops mops the, the, the nave, you know, she'll just start mopping, and then all of a sudden, I'm sitting there, I'm like, now she doesn't speak English very well, so it doesn't really matter, but she, I, a couple times, she's come in, and she's like, oh, like she's been mortified. <coughs> but if we had a confessional, that would make things a little easier, because, you know, we don't have to worry about all that, but anyways, yeah, that's happened several times, where I'm hearing confession, someone walks in, because you can't really see real well, until you're, like, back there. They're like, oh, whoops. And the person who's, you know, saying confession, they're, they're like kind of, uh, what do I do now? Yeah, I've only had to one time actually get up from hearing confession to tell a person to leave. It's only happened once. Most people are kind of aware. But this person was very, like, in a, in a good spot. But they, I mean, they were so out of, they, I don't think they even knew somebody was in, I don't, well, they obviously must not have, but, yeah. Yes, because you could see very clearly, that's right, that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, here's another thing, too, another place that's, there's another confessional, and that, that we, Pastor Ruzik and I, we've heard confession in our, in our offices upstairs, too, but we both prefer to do it at the altar. Okay, but th- that's a good example. Uh, Lutherans don't have confessionals. Well, I mean, I'm not advocating having a confessional because we already have one, like I said. But to spend a lot of money taking confessionals out seems a little bit based on what they do and rather than what Lutherans technically believe. All right, any other, any other kind of versions like that? Mary? 
Ooh, good, good question. I remember growing up in Ohio, we had stations, well, we got out of school, so, and we had the station for the cross. Yeah, right. And he said he was going to ask why. He didn't ask me. <laughs> you know I asked him. All right, so the station of the cross, uh, well, first of all, what are the stations of the cross? I've heard about them. Right. Uh, how many stations are there? Yeah, I, I've heard 14 too, but also, but 12, for, let's stick with 12, it's apostolic. Yes, and what, what are they, what are they, the, the, uh, if, uh, if you want to kind of describe them in terms of a, like a story or a narrative, what are they? Right, so Jesus' little travel from um, basically uh, Monday, Thursday night to, to uh, his death. And, uh, okay, so that, that's, that's in the Bible. Although, depending on, well, it depends. So one of the stations, though, has a, yeah, kind of a legendary story. With Saint Veronica, who's Saint Veronica, Nancy? She presumably was this lady who had a cross and held it up to Jesus. His image was on the cloth. Yeah. Now that that's not always in the Stations of the Cross, but that's pretty typical, I think. Um, if you were to see the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson makes a makes that a, a big scene where. Uh, Jesus is carrying the, the cross on the way to Golgotha. He falls. Saint Veronica is there and wipes blood off his face. And if you watch, I mean, if you take it off, it, it doesn't look like a smear. It looks like an exact imprint, mm-hmm. a, a bloody imprint. Mm-hmm. That's actually um, a, a, a also in Eastern Orthodoxy. That that's a that's a very special moment because. So the story goes, that's where they get the image of Jesus for icons. So, yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. There you go. Uh, okay, then uh, that's, that's, okay, good. Stations of the Cross. So um, those are all very, that, that, that's all good things. We should be thinking about those things, right? Well, why don't Lutherans do them? That's right. So, yeah, we don't do them because the Roman Catholics do them. Uh, now, you have to ask yourself, is that a good reason? No. no. Um, so, I mean, that would be the simple answer, Mary. That's why we don't do them. However, I've been to Lutheran churches that are not as high church as St. John, and they actually have them in the sanctuary. So that's, that's um, I have a friend... Wade Miller, he he has he has them in his church, where he serves, not based on his decision, but based on the the congregation's decision, and it's been started over a, a conversation like Mary asked, you know, why not? Holly. Right. Yeah, you you go to each station. You you kind of meditate upon the story, and what that means, and then and then you keep moving. Yeah. 
All right, that, that's, a, that's a good question, Mary, um, because, well, it's just because. The, the simple answer is because Roman Catholics do it. Because Romans, Roman Catholics do it. Yep. We don't do it because, because of that. I don't know. I do not know. Yeah, I don't think they have the Stations of the Cross as you would know them, Mary. Yep. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you got a whole different issue going on in there. So that would be a question. Uh, Lutherans don't have icons. Why don't we have icons? Well, this is this this answer is a little bit more complicated because Lutherans come out of the I mean, so you have a Western tradition and an Eastern tradition. Eastern tradition is heavily uh, with uh, you know heavily iconic, meaning icons. In the West, icons were necessarily completely fell out of disuse, but they weren't the primary uh, form of piety. W- what in the West? Stained glass windows and statuary. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so Lutheran churches don't have icons mainly for that reason, not per se in terms of like, well, we don't have them because Eastern Orthodox do them. Uh, it's because we have kind of our own version of icons. Th- that's a bad way of saying it, but. Well, you know, at St. John, though, we, rather than. Having so okay so uh, statuary when I say statuary 3D image of a of a body that's all I mean uh, in terms of the cross in Roman Catholic churches in the churches of the West it's always been a, like a crucifix now here at St John mm-hmm. we have a crucifix but it's not a statue it's a iconic image it's an icon so. I think for a lot of us, this is hard to answer. We need to have Donna back here. Donna was rattling off all the yeah. old Lutheran, old LCMS Lutheran traditions. She, uh, yeah, she, that was pretty funny. So, um, so here at St. John, though, we've, we've asked this question a lot. You know, what do Lutherans do? Because we, there's a story here. When we were heading off to, it was the summer before we headed to... A seminary, and we had a mutual friend. I say we, Holly and I. Uh, so there was a fourth-year student, someone coming off their vicarage back to Fort Wayne. His name was Randall, and then I'm heading towards seminary, and we both had a mutual friend that lived in Glenview. So we met each other at a dinner, and uh, Randall did not grow up Lutheran. I didn't grow up Lutheran, so we're like, hey, talking about, you know, kind of like how we got to this point. And this is a very great story. He told a story. He was uh, reading his Bible and kind of reading, you know, theology. And when it came to the Lord's Supper, he grew up a a, kind of a Baptist Presbyterian. Uh, And he asked his pastor, he said, you know, what is it? What's the Lord's Supper? 
And the first thing that the, the pastor said is, well, it's not really the body and blood of Jesus. He kept defining on, and that's, you know, Baptists believe that, Presbyterians believe that. It's not truly the, the body and blood of Jesus. Um, and he kept asking his pastor, you know, well, then what is it? And the pastor kept defining it by what it's not. And Randall finally came to the conclusion, he says, well, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to understand the Lord's Supper, which seems to be a big deal in the Gospels, <laughs> um, if I'm going to understand it by what it's not, then I'm always going to be asking what kind of question? What well, what is it? And, and that, for me, has really stuck with me. I mean, I'll tell you what, I mean, I remember that conversation very, very clearly, and that was always so helpful for me as I entered into seminary. Because I did come across other people who understood their Lutheranism in terms of what it's not or what we don't do. And for me, that was very hard because uh, you always ask a simple question. So then what do we do? <laughs> or, what, you know, or what is it? Because, it, it, uh, I mean, think about that in terms of your life. If you always define yourself by what you're not. There's a couple fundamental issues with that, and you, know, you just think about that. Very good. It is negative and it's unknown. It's shallow. Well, what do you mean by that, Bobby? Right. When you have a hierarchy in the church, you're going to yeah, no, it's not. When you got a little grumpy sitting in front of you, yeah, it is. <laughs> well, so Bobby, though, so exactly, it's wishy-washy insofar as in order to understand yourself in terms of the negative, by what you're not, what do you always have to have? Well, you always, you always have to have the, the opposite, right? If we understand, so Lutherans if they understand themselves by not being quite Roman Catholic, what do they have to have in order to exist? They have to have Roman Catholics! Now you're in a very precarious position. Well, so you have a lot of, I mean, if you think about it, but, but this, is where, this is where if we ask the question, then what do we are, it doesn't really matter what circumstances we're in. Because we are, yeah, or yeah, we're we're Lutheran, but I mean, but in a in a very tangible way. And for me, um, this this came abundantly clear when Holly and I traveled to Siberia. Because guess how many Roman Catholics are in Siberia? Hardly any. Hardly any. And. So this whole, like, this whole kind of discussion about, like, well, we don't do that because that's Roman Catholics, that, that means nothing to them because they're like, well, what are Roman Catholics? They don't even know. They have no experience about that. So it, it was a very enlightening for me then to say, okay, 
I'm a Lutheran, they're a Lutheran. And I've heard so many, uh, whether it be my classmates in seminary or my experience just around Lutheranism, say, well, we're, we're kind of like this, but we're, we're not like this. Going to Siberia really kind of threw that whole thing out because if you don't have something else to be not like, then you're basically, then you're basically nothing. So um, that, that's something that is, I think, important for us. Uh, now, Pastor Bruzek will, will sometimes say, um, you can't be defined by what you hate. Uh, and that's true. I, I, think, I, I don't necessarily think that people hate certain things. Uh, but the idea is, like, you're defining yourself by what you're not. And if you keep peeling those layers, well, I'm not that, 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 I'm not that eventually... You'll come, to, you'll come to a crisis, actually. You'll ask yourself, well, what am I? Or who am I? Or you will say, I'm nothing. And then you will say, well, those people say they are, though, they are them. And I wonder, this is just kind of very anecdotally, how many people have left Lutheranism because they weren't ever able to define who they are and what they believe? Okay. Yep. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, right. I mean, this is this goes again to my initial point: is when Luther ref, kind of reformed the liturgy. What was his intention? To put the focus back on God and not on the actual liturgy itself or the, the, the rules or the rites. But unfortunately, what people have done, though, with the idea that, well, he changed it, that means we can change it or just kind of do whatever we want. That actually is definitely not Lutheran tradition, and that's not what you know, Lutheran even did. I mean, that's, that's not even what he did. So, um, in fact, in the, in the book, she tells the story about this woman praying the rosary. You know, she's in church, and she gets up, and she, the, this group of people are praying the rosary. Again, we have to kind of translate what that means for Lutherans. But uh, clearly, she's not doing it right. Now, but, but Elizabeth Scalia says, even though she's not doing it right, or what, you know, what people could say is right, She's actually doing it perfectly. And that, that's important for us to kind of consider because the liturgy is not about following the rules or the rubrics, but about attention towards God. And if you ever work with children, you'll get this in spades. Because the children won't necessarily say the Lord's Prayer quite right. Um, they won't necessarily get the, the creed completely right. However, would we ever say, I mean, hopefully you would never say to a child, you're doing it wrong. Because what does the child think? Well, before that, before, before you would say that, what does the child think? I'm doing it wrong. No, I'm doing it right. 
until you say, you know, you're doing it wrong, they, they think, I'm doing it perfectly. I'm praising God. I'm praying to God. And so, unfortunately, though, I mean, I know a lot of people who are so concerned about the rules that they aren't able to adapt and see what's really going on. And, um, and I would say that, that on, a, on a kind of an analogy or a, a certain level, that's exactly what's going on with Luther in the Reformation of the liturgy, is that Luther's main point is worship of God, but not starting a whole new conversation, but just directing the conversation back to what it initially was. Now, what do I mean by that? Last week I said, think about the liturgy in terms of a conversation between God and man starting from way back when. And as we enter into that conversation, we just simply say, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Let's do this. Or, "Ah, we don't need to talk about that. I want to do that. What a lot of people have done with worship is exactly that. They said, well, we don't need to do that anymore. Let's do this. And the motivation behind that, well, has anybody ever kind of heard that? Well, I don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. Let's do that. Oftentimes it will come out different ways, but... What, why, why do people even say that? They're not certain about what? Okay. Good. Okay, so they don't have a proper foundation. Yep. I would say that that's true. Okay. Yeah, right. But they don't they don't actually believe that it's the sacrament. <laughs> right. Yeah, well I um okay, that's right. They don't have the proper foundation, they don't understand. They uh Um, oftentimes you change the liturgy because of what? Rachel? Well, yeah, what you want. That's right. I mean, and that's what Scalia says, basically. And that's true. Uh, what do most people want? Uh, it, and sometimes it's not necessarily self-serving. I only want this. But we should do it this way because... Yeah. Be, yeah. It'll bring people in. It's more appealing. All this, yep. Um, if that is your, your kind of perspective on the way you worship, it is, as Rachel says, humanly focused. Um, again, I, when I... I'm trying not to make it about my own personal experience, but when I became a Lutheran, the thing that really kind of was interesting for me was the scripture citations in, in, the, in the worship service. I was taught to love God's word as a child. And yet, outside the reading of the Bible along with the sermon, that was the only word of God in a worship service growing up. 
And I was that kid who said, well, why do we do it this way? Meaning, you know, why does the pastor do the announcements, like, you know, just before uh, the offering? This is my I Baptist church going up, by the way, just to make sure everyone remembers. Um, you know, why, you know why, do we, why do we start out with that, that song? And why do we start out with this? And the answer was, because that's, that's the way we do it. And if someone was a little bit more savvy, they would say, well, we don't have to do it like those other churches. Which, of course, made me think, what do those other churches do? I, I, I didn't know. I was, so I, I explored that. Those, those kind of answers aren't very helpful, especially if you're taught to love God's word. So liturgy uh, is kind of in, you know, saturated with God's word. And it's, it actually uses God's word appropriately. What, what do I mean by that? In the context of the scripture itself. It's used in the context of the scripture itself. So, um, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins. I, to be honest, when I first went to the liturgy, I didn't realize that was even the, in the Bible. It's from 1 John, right? Well, obviously we all know because, you know, from 1 John, it's a direct quote, but man, it, it actually is appropriate because we're about to confess our sins. The second thing is, Lord, have mercy, the Kyrie. Uh, uh, if you actually read, it comes from uh, the stories as Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem. And uh, blind Bartimaeus is one of the examples. So blind Bartimaeus says, uh, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, you know, what do you want? You know, and he receives sight. And what does blind Bartimaeus do? He follows Jesus into Jerusalem. He enters into the presence of Christ, <coughs> receives kind of absolution, God's mercy, and then follows him. Well, that's what we do at the beginning of the service. We cry out to God, have mercy on us. God bestows his mercy, and we praise his name in the form of the Gloria, which, of course, is from Luke. I mean, I'm like, holy smokes. This is what's happening in the Bible. This is what we're doing. So, um, so you, have, you have to ask yourself, what's wrong with the Word of God? <laughs> are you interested in what you want, or are you interested in, in what learning the Word of God? And not just learning it in a cerebral sense, but putting yourself into the Word of God. And she has uh, subsumed. I, I, did I actually quote that whole thing? Something so it's on page forty one forty nine, I think, or maybe one fifty, something like that, around there. Anyway, so it doesn't have, we don't have to worry about it. But um, the 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 liturgy subsumes us. God's word subsumes us. Christ, you know, and and that's some. Oh, yeah, there it is, page one fifty four. That's very important for us to kind of remember. So as we worship. We're not there to kind of feel good about ourselves or get what we want, but we're actually there to get what we need. And the liturgy, as a conversation from the beginning of the world, might be just what we need. Now, that doesn't mean, though, the liturgy everywhere is the same. This is the great quote, uh, this is the great story about this rosary. As you travel throughout the world, 
and you interact with churches in different countries who, though, are on the same page in terms of goal, you know, they have asked themselves, you know, they've asked questions about the liturgy. However, they have articulated it in their circumstance. But the fundamental question, though, is, you know, who's, who's, who's the primary, what's the primary point? And that's worshiping God. So, you know, um, uh, well, well, Pastor Finn, okay, he was here, whatever, a few weeks ago, right? You, you go to the liturgy, you go to the liturgy in Ghana, guess what? You're going to still have the Kyrie, you're still going to have the Gloria, but it won't be LSB version. Well, it might be, because, you know, he obviously, but, um, but you will, you'll be able to say, oh, hey, this is just like what we do. Contrary to that, though, oh, and by the way, every, pretty much every single culture in the world has, if for Christian churches, has a liturgy. I mean, like, um, so you find liturgical churches basically in, everywhere, if there's a Christian church there. And that's mainly because of uh, Roman Catholic missionaries, Anglican missionaries, but also Lutheran missionaries, too. But, um, but like, uh, Willow Creek and Contemporary Church, uh, they're, they're not in every culture. I mean, that, that's not a universal practice. And that, that's actually something that you should kind of ask about. Nancy? Well, I mean, you get Assembly of God or something. In but yeah, mean, that's the have, Pentecostals, I mean, yeah, right. Have that from the other perspective, there are, I mean, I've been told, oh, liturgy, that's just a mindless repetition. But the ironic thing is these same people will think it's just wonderful memorize scripture verses and oh if their child is three or something can quote all these scripture verses which you know it's poor child has no idea what he's saying. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's in James. Um, <laughs> wonderful and very meaningful but then they think the liturgy where you actually have the Bible verses which are put together in a way that you have a complete scripture kind of thing. Right. And that's just mindless repetition. I mean it's very um, kind of a blind spot I guess. A big time. Actually, uh, and th- this is very important. Um, to, I don't know if you uh, heard Nancy. So you have somewhat, you could say it's ironic, or you could say it's hypocritical, I guess, where you have people who are very critical of liturgy because it's mindless repetition. You just do the same thing over and over again. But usually those who are critics of it would uphold Bible memorization. A child, a child who memorizes scripture at an early age, at, you know, three years old, and Nancy says, you know, there's no way they can learn that, mainly because there's, like, big, big, huge words in there, right? I mean, like, you know, raise for our justification, the propitiation of sins. I mean, I don't don't even know what those mean. But I know, I I memorized that when I was a child. So so it is something where, as as Lutherans, that's, that's a great point of discussion. I also, I've had this conversation where someone said that about the Lord's Prayer. I said, um, you know, who gives the greatest gifts? Okay, I, uh, Jesus gives the greatest gifts. Right, excellent. What has he given us? Our salvation. Okay, okay, okay. What if Jesus gave you a prayer? Would that be a good prayer to prayer? Well, this person realized he had been trapped. 
Now, thankfully, uh, he was uh, uh, honest enough to say, yes, that would be the best prayer. And if that is the best, best prayer, why wouldn't you pray it as often as you could? In fact, I even kicked it up a notch in terms of children. Teaching your children the Lord's Prayer at an early age, when you, when, when your child, like, so think about it in terms of this. Your child will never remember a time where they did not know the Lord's Prayer. So they could say on their dying bed, they've been praying the Lord's Prayer for their entire life. When you put it in that perspective, you're like, yeah, it's a good thing. Because the words of Jesus have been on their lips forever. And that probably won't change, though, in, in, uh, in heaven, too. All right, Krista. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, so actually, Krista brings up a very good thing, though, about uh, that. That would be an, uh, another form of a of a good thing becoming an idol, and that would actually be the Bible. Um. Because of this very thing, uh, I grew up this way. I don't believe. I don't. I don't believe in a creed. I don't believe in a creed because I believe in what, the Bible. Well, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that there is a lot of different interpretations of the Bible. Okay, and understanding the one, like, so what makes something true and and all that. Now, the great thing though, as Lutherans is that we have, um, we do have tradition. So this goes back to the conversation. As Lutherans, we, we ask, well, how has it been understood before? And that has directly influenced how we interpret the Bible. Okay. You boil that question down, you wind up at the creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasians' Creed. Uh, so really, to to not have this way of understanding puts you in a bad spot in terms of uh, kind of certainty, or not certainty, but a confidence in what you've been taught and what you believe. And without that, then things do become a little bit of a, you know unstable. Actually, there was a there was a great story here. Uh, there was a pastor in Sweden. I think it's the largest church in Sweden. Not oh maybe it was a, it was a, a contemporary church. And just a few weeks, yeah, a few weeks ago, it was in April. I can't remember if it was like on Easter Sunday or Palm Sunday. Not they don't they didn't I mean they don't celebrate Palm Sunday. But anyways, they. Uh, he announced to his congregation that he's converting to Roman Catholicism. That would be like Bill, the pre, like the pastor at, at Willow Creek, saying, eh, "I'm not going to be a, I'm not going to be your pastor anymore. I'm going to, I'm." Yeah, it had to be in Palm Sunday because it was at the Easter Vigil. He would have been welcomed into the Roman Catholic Church. Um, it was crazy. 
huge. Uh, now, what was funny, though, is some of the parishioners were like, eh, I think I saw that coming. But one of the things he said, though, was related to what Chris has said, was the interpretation of Scripture. In his studies of the Scripture, he realized he needed to have, it couldn't be just based on his own interpretation, but he needed to have a tradition of interpretation to help him understand it. There's a bunch of other things, but that was the that was the cliff notes because obviously he preached in Swedish and I saw uh, like a, a translation of it. That was very interesting. I mean, that's fascinating for me to have 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 seen that happen. Okay. Well, anyways, I um. So let's see here. We I want to spend a little bit of time on the last chapter, dreadful idol, the conclusion, my dreadful idol. The uh, simple question is, what's your dreadful idol? Not that you need to speak it, but the thing I, that was really important for me from that last bit was how her idol became her idol. How did that happen? Anybody remember? Krista. Is that your idol? Your idol of seeing other people's idols? Well, actually, that was kind of what her, her idol was. Her idol was writing about idols, right? And uh, the work, I mean, the work, it ended up kind of boiling it down to work. But yeah, that, that's, I, I thought the same thing, Krista. I said that we've been spending so much time talking about idols. I, I wonder if my thinking about idols has been my idol. Finding idols and other things. But the, um, how her, her, her idol became her idol was, first of all, uh, was her work good? Meaning, like, you know, it, it was good insofar as, like, what? I mean, you know, she's, writing, she's, trying, to, she's trying to teach other people God's word. She's trying to teach theology. So that's, on that level, it was good. But when did it become bad? Well, she ran out of words. Right. So first it was, can't go to my son's baseball game. Can't call my son on the phone. Then I didn't say my, yeah, I didn't have my, my uh, devotions. Then I, well, and then again, this is a Roman Catholic practice. I didn't go to the adoration of the sacrament. But then she finally just stopped going to church. And the penultimate example was when she was working so hard, she just worked right through church. Didn't even notice it. Now she said that was an honest mistake, but really, come on. Okay. Well, that's actually a very good thing too. Is I said, uh, yeah, the road the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh, but let's before we get to that. Um, yeah, basically, her idol, even though it was a good work, it turned into an idol by simply not keeping first things first, and realizing that. When things are first, they need to remain first, or else bad things can happen. Well, exactly, and it becomes, as she said, I mean, so easy to, I mean, it was like dominoes falling, right? Boom, 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 boom. And she found herself, found herself on a Sunday afternoon literally working through what she thought was the most important thing in the world. Of course, it wasn't the most important thing in the world, even though she might have said that, right? Because her actions basically tell the opposite. 
So I think that is that was just that was a good thing for, for well for me as a pastor because pastors work. Many people will tell you you're doing a, you know you're doing work that's good, you know because it's it's ministry. Anybody who does you know whether it be um, well like like uh, a Jan working with mo- uh, most ministries, I forgot his name. Well, him, him and his wife, right? Yeah. Don, right? Don. Uh, I mean, that's good work. But if he spends so much time in this to, uh, at, at the expense of what's first, and basically Scalia said what's first, family, church family, that's about it, I think. If you are sacrificing, and that, that's a correct word, you sacrifice your family and your faith to this idol, you know, you're going to wind up in a bad spot, even though initially it's good work. Pastors do this a lot. There's an organization called Doxology that, that is trying to care for pastors in these moments. Um, so my father-in-law, when I first met Holly, has said this, and <laughs> it always sticks with me. Work smarter, not harder. Because when you work smarter, I, th- I think working smarter is keeping things first things first. I just said as a very concrete thing. You work s- your smartest when you're spending time with your family and, and, and church. All else is really, you're not working smart when you... Now, of course, there's ebb and flows of work. So Holy Week for me, that's a busy time. You know, so that, you know, so things have to be adjusted. And, uh, but it's very easy then for things to get out of hand too. So, but, um, you know, because once Holy Week's over, then everyone says, oh, Holy Week's over, Pastor. Can you do this now? You know, so all of a sudden, I mean, it's, you know, you feel like it's the same thing. Uh, all right. Anyways, that's that's my own little bit. But I think putting work before life, I think that's another way to say it. You know, when you actually see your work as life, you're in a bad spot. All right. Now, the thing was, is the, the good intentions. Well, I didn't mean to not call my son. I didn't, I mean, I love my son, but I didn't, I didn't mean to not call him. I love my son, but I didn't mean not to go to the baseball game. As my son will say when he accidentally causes my daughter to cry because he knocked her down. Well, I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. Um, it doesn't change the fact it happened. And this is uh, something I thought about. An accident can hurt as much as a punch in the face. <laughs> so if you're on the receiving end of that, I don't really, you know, if I, you know, I don't really care if you meant to do good. I still got a, I got a black eye. You know, that means something. So I think this is where good intentions really have a short shelf life. And I, I, the old the old saying I don't know who said that so the road to hell is paved with good intentions mm-hmm. I don't know who said that but 
somebody smart, not me. That is something that's really important. And uh, so good intentions simply could be an idol itself, too. And then the last thing, so any, anything about good intentions and all that struggle, I mean, and, and just your own idols, dreadful idols. Krista. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the idol of being right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know. And and yeah. So this. <laughs> okay. So yeah. Hopefully, though, as we study other people's idols, or or like this uh, book, you know, these different chapters, uh, it it enlightened us to maybe our own temptations to, to worship those same idols, too. I, uh, and the last quote, I, I just threw it in there because I've been thinking about this ever since I read it. The only, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Man. Oh, Dorothy Day. Yeah, I, I think that's why idols are so much, that, she didn't use it that way necessarily, but that's why we love idols so much because we can love them more than God. Because <laughs> we, love, we love God only as much as we love the person I love the least. All right, not to end it on a downer, but that, that's uh, a challenge then, to confront what holds us back from worshiping the one true God. All right, any, any last comments, questions, before we wrap this up? All right. Well, next year, you know, uh, David Bukes will be here, so not just me. So that'll be a good thing. Variety is the spice of life. Um, and, I, yeah, I'll be excited for that. Very excited. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.